Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Good morning. We're in Genesis again for these last few weeks, tracing the good promises of our good God. In our text today, we're looking at Jacob's longing for a home. I'm hoping that you have a Bible with you, either on a phone or physically that you brought with you, or the Pew Bible that should be in a pocket in front of you. We're on page 21. That's where Genesis 28 is. We're going to be pretty intently in the text this morning, and it would be good if you're able to track along with it. We all have longings. It's a universal longing to belong, to have a home. And the reality is, for us, living in a fallen world, that home doesn't always feel like home should. And even for those that have the best of homes, home isn't truly our home. Today in the text, we're encountering this universal longing. As Jacob escapes the wrath of his older brother and is exiled away from the land of promise. I think that's what's going on here. This is an exile kind of language, a sojourning kind of text. And he's in good company. He's got a grandfather who was an exile, Abraham. He's got a dad who was an exile, Isaac. And Jacob is also in good company with others of the patriarchs. He's got an angry older brother who has murder on his mind. Does that remind you of anyone in Genesis so far? Cain, angry, who was conquered by his sin. The firstborn, the hope of his mother Eve, turned out to be more like a deceiving, murderous snake. So Esau is in pursuit. Will Jacob survive and escape? And then what becomes of Esau in this story? So as we move through the Genesis narrative, we're picked up on different themes, different things that seem to be patterns that go different directions, like an exiled, faithful man, an angry, older brother. Patterns that are intended They're intentional by the biblical author to help us see what's important and what's kind of immaterial. Because again, we're in Genesis. This is narrative. Sometimes it's like, you know, what's here that's for us? And what's just descriptive, kind of describing what took place? These patterns help us see what is important. And these patterns will grow. We're going to see other instances in Genesis and then, yeah, through the rest of the Bible of exile and older, angry brothers. You have to remember, the God of Abraham, Abraham, who was in Ur, kind of down towards the modern United Arab Emirates today, on one side of Saudi Arabia, he was worshiping false gods with his dad, according to Joshua 24. And God showed up in Genesis 12 and said, go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he believed God and he went pursuing this promise of a place and a people and a presence that we've been tracking. He built altars, all these different places he went. He worshiped God. He was given a miraculous son born from a barren womb. And he purchased a single plot of land in this promised land buried his wife there. And yeah, all the other patriarchs were like, we want to be buried there, want to be buried there. We're going to talk about that. This God is the same God of Isaac, 
who was also given two miracle children. Sounds like a pattern. Made an altar to God, worshiped him. And he heard the promise that his secondborn, not his firstborn, his secondborn would inherit the blessing. So today in the text, where we're at in Genesis, we have to ask the question, will he also be the God of Jacob? Let's pray. God, as we're about to turn to the text, the Holy Spirit has promises associated with this that you're gonna minister the word to us. So do that as we're here, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first look at chapter 28, verses one through five. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the erring man, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So just to recap, the way that the previous chapter ended, Isaac heard his wife Rebekah, who was afraid for her one son, that her other son was going to kill him. So he heard Rebekah, he heeded her, and he sent Jacob away to protect him from the wrath of his brother. And in so doing, Isaac blesses his son with the same blessing we heard back in Genesis 12, and was repeated in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, Right before this blessing, he tells him, why is he sending him away? Jacob is not to marry a Canaanite woman, which is true in addition to your brother wants to kill you. Most significant here is just to focus on this. We're going to return in a minute to like what's significant about don't marry a Canaanite woman. But most significant here is that Isaac explicitly passes on the blessing that he received from Abraham to Jacob. It's been implied in the story about the birthright and the soup in chapter 26, uh, uh, or yeah, in chapter 26, and then the blessing from the last chapter that's stolen or returned back to Jacob. But here it's explicit and it's in the same language that we've seen throughout Genesis. So if there's any doubt, Jacob is the one that's inheriting the promises. Go and I will bless you. Go, I will make you fruitful that you might become, ESV translates it, company of peoples. The, the word is uh, kahol, it's, a, uh, it's assembly. It's a, a gathering of peoples. I won't talk about uh, what that might mean uh, and how that's taken by later people. You can come talk to me about that later. He's blessed, Jacob is blessed, despite being exiled, just like Abraham was. Kind of like Isaac was too, going to Gerar. Not what you'd expect. You think of blessing as the place that you live, your home. But this thing that we're seeing again and again is that God goes with his people and he blesses them by his presence, regardless of where they are, because he's the God of covenant. 
So Abraham went to Egypt. Isaac goes to Gerar, like I mentioned. Jacob is going to go to Paddan Aram. Joseph is going to go to Egypt, and then all of Israel is going to move to Egypt. The patriarchs didn't get to stay for very much of their life in the land of promise. So when God makes promises about the land, while his people are in the land, kind of should make us pay attention, take note. And that's what's happening today. Again, this is why I think Abraham purchases a piece of land from the Hittites to bury his wife in. And then like tons of people in Genesis and even later in the Old Testament point back at that piece of land. Like, I want my bones buried there, says Joseph. I want, you know, I want to be buried there. Take my remains 400 years later and put me there. I think there's something here for us. It speaks to hope, hope in the promises of God, hope in the promises of God, the not ethereal and elsewhere and kind of only in heaven, but the hope in the promises of God that's here on earth. And I think it's another sermon for another time in another text. I think it speaks to the hope in a resurrection, even back here in Genesis. So Genesis is setting up for us patterns. You ever driven through Kansas, kind of east in Kansas? It's pretty boring. Like drive for a while, it's just flat. Oh, what's over this slow loping hill? A sloping hill. What's over this sloping hill? A sloping hill. You get to the border of Kansas, heading west, and in the distance on a clear day, you can see mountains. Mountains in Colorado, right? If you're going through Genesis and you're like, oh, it's a, another patriarch who took his wife and kind of you know, used her as a bargaining chip. Oh, it's another patriarch who did this or did that. We're supposed to be looking over the horizon, both to the end of Genesis and then I think to the rest of the biblical text and say, what are the patterns here? If you've only ever uh, been in Minnesota, you might think that Buck Hill is a mountain right? But it's not. There are mountains. And so if you've only ever heard, yeah, Buck Hill's a mountain, then you actually see one. Oh, you can see how they're related perhaps, but one is much greater than the other. That's what we're doing in Genesis. Okay. We're, we're getting kind of, uh, this is maybe shifting the analogy a little bit. We're learning how to ski on bunny hills so that we can, you know, take a day and try not to die in Colorado. Now, we, like Jacob, I think this is what this is pointing to. We, like Jacob, are chosen to be exiles. This is 1 Peter 1.1. The church is the chosen exiles of God. So we need to be able to say, as we look at this text, what's in here for us? We're part of this pattern that Jacob is in. Jacob is sent away. He's blessed as he goes. What about his older, seizing, murderous brother? So this is six through nine. A scorned son strives. Turn with me back to the text. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paran Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Paran Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, Esau went to Ishmael, 
and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, or besides the wives he had, also Mahalaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. Now, some commentators take this uh, in this text like um, Esau saw what was going on with his mom and dad and Jacob, and he got even more riled up. He's like, all right, I'm going to get another wife that's going to tick them off. I don't think that's actually what's going on here. I think this is like, he's thinking, okay, here's one set of relatives that he wants uh, my brother to get wives, get a wife from, right? I'm going to find a different set of relatives. Ishmael is Isaac's brother, right? Or half-brother. And he's going to try to strive and be in a spot where just like his brother Jacob, he finds a place of approval with his mom and dad. Briefly here, why, why not, why don't marry Canaanite women? Well, we have an answer back at the end of chapter 26, right? When Esau was 40 years old, this is 26 verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beria the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So I don't think this is like an injunction about like, some kind of ethnic partiality, like marry this kind of ethnicity and not this kind of ethnicity, okay? Uh, I think there's a grounding here in a conflict. Life is bitter. Maybe we're going to see reasons why. In part, this is true because we just see Hittites, right? You got Uriah the Hittite, the first husband of Bathsheba, and he is more righteous than the king of Israel, Here's a man of that ethnicity, but he is a God-fearing man. And then you have one of the people groups from Solomon's many wives that pulled him away from worship of the true God was the Hittites. So I don't think this text is specifically about don't, don't marry outside an ethnicity. I mean, even Moses married outside, the author of Genesis married outside his ethnicity. I think what's happening here is not about ethnicity, but rather what those marriages are doing to the worship of the true God. I think it's fair to infer that what's bitter to some degree for Isaac and Rebekah is that these Hittite wives are pulling Esau away. This is the same thing going on in chapter 24, verses 2 through 5, for Abraham saying to his servant, I don't want Isaac to marry any of the Canaanite women of the land. He used to go back and find him a wife from my uh, kindred, which is how he gets Rebecca. Now, there's additional subtext here, all right? Esau, why is he taking all these wives? What's going on here? Well, I, the author of Hebrews gives us a little bit of a clue, I think, to what's going on with Esau. This is Hebrews chapter 12, 15 through 17, in a bigger and broader text for the church. The author of Hebrews says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that there's no root of bitterness springing up and causing trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. The author of Hebrews describes Esau as sexually immoral. 
Very possibly his desire for many wives points to this. There's some similar language in Hebrew that comes up later in Judges for Samson. Remember Samson, who's the guy who's like running around trying to be with multiple women, all right? That I think is actually echoed and pointing back. Again, we're talking about patterns. And according to the author of Hebrews, he was also unholy, or it's the word that's commonly translated as worldly in our New Testament. He cared more about the things of the world that he could receive that would please him than the promise of God. So unfaithful Esau is driven to anger and murder, I think, because he's turned his back on God. He's turned his back on God. Cain was conquered by his sin. Remember Genesis 4, sin lies at the door. His desire is for you. You have to conquer it. He didn't win. Sin conquered him and he killed his brother. And Esau seems destined for the same fate. Is there hope for him? Is there hope for people that are striving wayward? Maybe you have a striving wayward child, a loved one, a friend. The God who is gracious to Jacob is also the God who is gracious to Esau and to those who are in the pattern with him. And we pray for wayward ones that they come to their senses. We're going to see whether or not Esau does. We're going to see whether or not others do who are in that same pattern. So today, are you striving? Are you wayward? Do you want approval? Unsure where you stand before God? All of the promises we're talking about today, the promise of place, the promise of a people, the promise of a presence, find their apex, their finality in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. We at South Cities take it to be the truest of true things and the greatest of all treasures that the Son of God was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life in the place of imperfect sinners, imperfect sinners like me, imperfect sinners like you. And then he died the death that we as imperfect sinners deserved, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, never to die again. And in so doing, he broke death, conquering it. That we might be approved by God, by faith. Faith alone, no striving. Jesus has done it all. We've already seen this example. That's not just for us today. We've already seen this in Genesis, right? God comes to Abram in chapter 15, takes him outside, He's doubting, he's waffling in his faith. He says, look up, see the stars? You're offspring. You don't have a son, Isaac. Your wife's uh, womb is barren. You're as good as dead, uh, according to the author of Hebrews. You're at very advanced in age. Look up, your offspring will be more numerous than the stars of heaven. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness, a right standing with God. That's not just for Abraham. That's for Isaac. That's for Jacob. That's for all the faithful that we see in the scriptures. That's for you today. So your longings for acceptance, your longings for approval, find their end in the acceptance and approval and the presence of the God of the universe. You cannot be righteous from the outside in. 
like your behavior can be modified and that's actually going to touch at your heart. You have to be changed from the inside out. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse from within. That is the need for each of us. Whether you are in Christ, counting him as Savior and Lord today or not. Our hope is in God himself coming and taking residence to change us from the inside out. So if we're going to believe God, if any of us is going to believe God, if Jacob's going to believe God in this text, you have to find something to believe in. And God shows up in a big way. This is chapter 28, verses 10 through 22, the faithful God promises. So into this narrative of competing brothers and long journeys, the God of Abraham asserts himself, and we should be glad he does. This is a but God kind of text, like, like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, same thing, all right? God, who's rich in mercy. We know he's here. Isaac trembled last week in the sermon text that Dave preached on as he remembered God's providence. And now God is going to speak. He's been in the background for a few chapters. He's going to speak. So this is chapter 28, verses 10 through 11, a stone pillow. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay it down in that place to sleep. There's some significance here into the, the geography. I know some of you guys have been to the land of Israel. Uh, even some of you recently, I think there was a trip in October or November, something to that effect. Like if you've been to Israel, the geography kind of helps uh, shape this. And I, I, this morning at whatever it was, I was like, oh, I should have done a map. And then I was like, oh, well, not enough time. Google isn't fast enough. Uh, not fast enough for a pastor getting his family ready with his wife for church. So this is what I'm going to do. I just thought about this a second ago. All right. Imagine the sanctuary is the promised land. All right. North, south, west, east. All right. Um, if you've heard the biblical phrase in the prophets from Dan to Beersheba, kind of like the most northward part of the promised land is Dan and the farthest southward is Beersheba. Beersheba is where Jacob is starting out down by that camera ish over there. All right. So, and then Northward of here is Dan, kind of the, the very northern part of the promised land. Padan Aram, Haran, is like on the back 40 back here, all right? It's like outside the building and quite a bit away outside. When he comes to Luz, or what he calls Bethel, he's like about to cross the Jordan River, not too far from the Jordan River. The Jordan River is like maybe that wall right there. And so he's like, kind of from the camera to like the baptismal looking to head outside the promised land. So the geography is significant because what's happening is, this is like, um, you, ever, you ever traveled on an airplane to a foreign country? Okay, not just like TSA, you know, like that feels like a foreign country sometimes. But like, you know, you're gonna like land in another place and then once you walk outside that airport, ain't no readmittance. We should, with Jacob, feel like Feels like no readmittance. Stepping outside the promised land. There's a little trepidation, a little fear. And so imagine, right before you leave, and you're stepping off into parts unknown, someone you love shows up 
and tells you they're going to go with you. That's the kind of emotional thing we should feel here. All right. So the blessing of his father is probably still in his heart and mind. And now God is going to show up. So this is a sleepy promise. This chapter 8, 28, 12 through 15. And Jacob dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go, and I'm going to bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Now, before we even get to God's words here, which I think this is the most significant part of this text, there's one thing I want to note. We're going to return to it. All right. Notice what's happening here with the angels. Angels that are going up, ascending, and descending on sometimes thought of as Jacob's ladder. The technical word is actually a staircase that gets used tons for a, a ziggurat, if you're familiar with your ancient Near East. Okay, like, like temple-type language, okay? It's you go up to where God is, you come back down to earth, all right? So I think there's a, there's a kind of like temple-type language happening here. Keep that in mind, right? This is like a pin. It's important for later. Go back up. Come back down, go up to where God is. And God is over top of Jacob, speaking down to him. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant name of God, not just the generic name of God. And look at what he promises, a place, a people, and a presence. This is about as clear as it gets. A place. The land that Jacob is lying on will be his and his offspring's. He's leaving it now. He's about to go on the other side of the Jordan to head towards Paran Aram. He's going to come back. It's going to be his. A people. Jacob is going to have more offspring than the dust of the earth. Just like Abraham was promised, you're going to have more offspring than the stars of the sky, more offspring than the sand on the seashore. So too, Jacob will have that. And in that offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he promises him his presence. God is going to be with Jacob. He's going to keep him wherever he goes and he's going to bring him back to the land of promise and he's not going to leave him until all that he's done, has been, all that he's promised has been completed. For this scheming, exiled son, there is promise enough. Promise enough. God will not leave him until he's done all that he's said. Now, the strong pillar I don't know about you, like stones are probably not the best of pillows, right? Uh, and then what does he do when he gets up? He's like, my pillow's gonna become a pillar of God's promise. Would you appreciate that, Dave? Sorry, that was, yeah, a bunch of, bunch of peas in a row. All right, all right, this is verse 16 through 18. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he had put on his head, 
set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. The Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. Jacob is tired, it's dark, and he lays his head down, looks random in the text, and it's not random to God. God is providential and sovereign over this. Jacob chooses the hostile hostel of a stone, right? It's laying down and God meets him in his dreams. What appeared to Jacob to just be a journey was the place that God had plans to meet him and bless him on his way out of the promised land towards an uncertain future. But in God's hands, the future is not uncertain. It is sure. Have you ever been on your way to an uncertain future? Yeah, me too. We are temporal, but our God is not. The land on which you lie will be yours. The promise for Jacob was that he would inherit the land because of the covenant faithfulness of God. This is a, a sloping hill in Kansas on the way towards a mountain elsewhere. Can you think of some biblical texts? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The promise to Abraham and his offspring by faith in Romans 4 was that they would inherit the world. Don't you know that all things are yours? Whether Paul or Apollos? Whether life or death? things to come, the world, all are yours. Christ is yours and Christ is God's, 1 Corinthians 3. We should not simply see Jacob as kind of a different kind of person, but as a prototype, a proto-saint with promises that are our promises in some measure, fully acknowledging that he is a descendant of the ethnicity of um, the Jews and they were going to receive a particular land, these promises get maximalized as you go through the biblical text. This is, this is like, I don't know, take your, take your whatever pattern from pop culture. This is like Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America in phase one of Marvel. And then Marvel had to dig deeper into their pocket of superheroes later on, right? Because they got to keep making money. This is like, you know, Disney movies, Princess patterns, whatever you want to call it. Your favorite TV show where it's like, okay, this is the same tried and true formula. Okay, there's a formula, a pattern here that points beyond it to something greater. I think what this text is pointing at, to some degree for us, as we take in the whole of the biblical narrative, as we look at Kansas on our way to Colorado, is when you lie your head down in, in New Prague, when you lie your head down um, in Vermilion, when you lie your head down in Lakeville, when you lie your head down if you're uh, you know, trucking up and down the, the highways, if you're lying your head down thinking of another country and this is not your home, I think what should ring in our ears from this text is this land on which you lie will be yours. Actually. New America, new Russia, new Ukraine, new Mexico, new Canada, all are yours. Christ is yours. What does Christ get? This renewed 
resurrected and you're resurrected with him, get it as well. I really do think that's what this text points towards. Inheritance of all this by those who have faith in the same God. But for Jacob, he's just starting out. He's just starting out. Now, he's immature in his faith, and I think there's two big clues about this. First clue, notice what he builds. This is the first time that this kind of language has shown up for worship or a place of worship. He built a pillar, all right? Abraham never built a pillar in relationship to worship to God. Isaac didn't. Abraham built three altars, and Isaac built an altar. Now, we see these four pillars that Jacob places. This is the first one. He, in chapter 31, verse 45, he places the pillar as a testimony between him and his father-in-law Laban. In chapter 35, verse 14, he makes another pillar when he's back at Bethel and at Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem in chapter 35, verse 19. He's building these pillars. Why do I think it's maybe some immaturity here? Well, the other thing that happens when he's back at Bethel in chapter 35, in addition to the pillar that he builds, he builds an altar. Same word for what Abraham and Isaac built. I think he's starting out in his faith journey. But then the next little bit, uh, chapter 28, verses 19 through 22, gives us another clue. This is a sure presence. Jacob called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the second clue that his faith is immature. The construction in Hebrew for an if-then thing, if you do this, then I will do this. This is the first time this shows up in Genesis. And it's Jacob doing it. Don't see anything like that, really, in it with Abraham. Uh, don't get enough, like, don't see anything about that with Isaac. His story is a bit shorter. The first time we hear of interaction between Jacob and Yahweh, he's like, if God will do this, then I'll do this. He's placing conditionality. Like, maybe he's not entirely sure that this will happen. And yet, despite his shaky faith, maybe a less than stellar commitment, the Lord will be his God. He's a blessed exile. God is with him, even though his faith is immature. So what do blessed exiles do? When God speaks a word of blessing, we believe him, regardless of what the circumstances might look around. Like I said from First Peter, he's called us to be exiles. He's given us a great salvation. When he speaks to remind us of his covenant with us, our reaction hopefully is, surely God is with us as he promised. So as we're concluding, God's promise is certainly for faithless, uncertain younger brothers who throw the gauntlet down for God. What good news that his promises aren't dependent upon my shaky faith, your shaky faith. We're going to see more of this story and what exactly this means for Jacob over the next 10 or so weeks as we continue. 
See, it starts out as a young man. I'll serve you if you're faithful, God. And a story ends with certainty that God is faithful. But we're in Kansas looking to Colorado. And there's big mountains ahead. One of the pieces of this text is very significant in the New Testament. Do you remember how in the dream uh, the staircase ascending into heaven is described? The angels ascend and descend and God speaks. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I saw somebody go, John chapter 1? You did, did that again? Yes, John chapter 1. All right. John chapter 1. Starting in verse 43 through 51. This is the beginning of John's account of Jesus in his ministry. He's calling the disciples to himself. I'm going to read a few verses here. John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to Jesus, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. If Jacob says, surely this is the gate of heaven. In Genesis 28, the way that Jesus, I think, quotes this is saying, surely this is the gate of heaven because God is in this place. God has come down to earth in the person of Christ, the presence of God with his people. For Nathaniel, and yes, for us too, because Jesus has come and he has left his spirit with us. We have greater clarity and perhaps greater promise than Jacob did. Jesus is the house of God, the very place of his presence, this new covenant temple. If a pillow becomes a pillar for Jacob, then this promise is certain for his presence with his people today. Do you know that God is with you? Do you remember that? As you go from this place, as you spend time at school, as you spend time at work, as you're getting your homework done, uh, kids, as you're spending time with family, God is present with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Even to the end of the world. The story of Jacob reminds us that though the world fell into sin, and though forefathers were exiled, outside the land of promise. He was with them. He made promises to them. And he makes promises to us to rescue us from sin and restore what has fallen by coming to us in the form of a servant who died a death 
even the death on a cross. Which brings us to communion. Communion is a reminder of God's presence with us. That he draws close to us in a meal that points forward to his presence again with us. He's coming again, and it may be very soon. So communion sets up for us in the same pattern, an expectation that we remember Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Every week as we take it. 